30 years and thousands and thousands of man hours and literally generations of detectives couldn't solve. See, Seymour got on her laptop when she got the go-ahead to do this case and identified the killer in two hours. That was Pulitzer Prize winner Edward Humes. We'll talk about DNA and the forever witness on this edition of The Crime Scene. The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they need justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the program. I am Jim Harold. So glad to be with you once again. And it's been quite a while because the last time I was here and talking to you about true crime was way back in December of 2019, but we decided to bring the crime scene back. And I'm so glad that we did because really this show predated Serial. It predated the big true crime craze. We originally started as a plus club only show, which was probably in retrospect a big mistake. But uh, it had been three years since we did this show, and I really missed it and have been planning on bringing it back for almost a year, but just got so busy with all the other podcasts we do that it just never happened. So that's a big thrust for 2023 every week to bring you an edition of the crime scene. And I can't think of a more fascinating subject or guest to join us today. I think you're going to enjoy it. Crime Scene is back. And DNA data, it uh, has a lot of implications, and specifically in the area of crime fighting and law enforcement. And uh, it's kind of morphed in a way I don't think anybody really ever foresaw or expected. And we're going to talk about that with a fantastic guest and how DNA uh, has done some great things and, and how it may be kind of a genie coming out of a bottle. Our guest today is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Edward Humes. He has authored 15 previous books to the one that we're going to talk about today. Those books include Burned, Mississippi Mud, and the Penn Award-winning No Matter How Loud I Shout. He lives in Southern California. And today we are talking about his new book, The Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. Edward Humes, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jim. I'm uh, pleased to be visiting with you. So a person with your background, you could probably choose almost any case that you wanted to. And the case that we're talking about goes back uh, to the late 1980s and two young people who were murdered, a cold case. Why did you choose this case for this book? Well, you know, I... Uh... I always look for a story that has multiple layers, and uh, this one really had had more than a chair. I think uh, you have first of all a haunting mystery set in a a part of the country that has has had more than a chair in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, you know, it's Ted Bundy land, and 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 so many other serial crimes have have haunted that landscape. And this was thought incorrectly as it turned out to be sort of of that same same type of of crime of a predator out looking for victims that they just weren't able to catch so there was that story there was that the science aspect of the story of genetic genealogy this new way of using dna to find people whose dna has never been tested and sampled uh it's it's truly a a, a breakthrough unlike any 
that has come along to since you know since the onset of using DNA at all for identifying people who commit crimes or finding the identities of the dead. Um, it, it's it's just a whole new order of ability to to find a person and to uncover their secrets to really find out things that uh, most people thought they had taken to the grave. That's why I called it the forever witness because it's. It never forgets. It never goes away. It's, you know, no secret is safe in some ways from this. Uh, and that has to both, as you said, a positive and a negative. And the final reason this case jumped out at me, it's the first one that was set and it actually did uh, go to a trial using this new technology that had been um, used to solve the Golden State Killer mysteries and you know, now hundreds of others. This was the first to actually be tested in court to see if this would hold up, see if this could be something that could be the next age of, of crime play. So kind of had it all. Well, any kind of case, and I always try to stress this, we're talking about real people here. We're talking about people who existed, had families, had dreams, had plans, and someone stepped in and snubbed those out. So talk to us about the case, the origins, Tanya and Jay, those poor young people. In fact, Tanya, she was born right around the same time I was. So I, when I saw her information, I felt a kinship. It's like, oh, my gosh, look how much life she missed out on. How sad. And the same with Jay, of course, as well. Tell us about them and what happened. Oh, yeah. Tanya and uh, Tanya Van Kylenborg and, and Jay Cook are well, actually very memorable characters. And take a second to talk about this kind of writing, you know, it's, I mean, it sort of gets pigeonholed as true crime, but it's, uh, it's a kind of journalism that most people are now calling narrative nonfiction. Back in the day, it was like the, the nonfiction novel, but the idea is that it's journalism with a heart is really what it is. And, and so the story doesn't work unless it's, as you say, there's real people, uh, and real empathy for their experiences and, and, uh, what happened to them and to those who loved them because of this, of this terrible crime. So that had to be a huge element of the story. And it, it all starts with Jay and Tanya. Um, she was 18. Uh, he was 20 years old. They were going on a simple trip from their um, home in, in Canada, on Vancouver Island, near the city of Victoria. They grew up in the suburbs there, a really idyllic place. It's, it's beautiful there. And, it's Canada's only Mediterranean climate. And Jay's dad ran a heating business, their heating repair and service business, and they needed a part, a new furnace for, for a home. And winter was approaching. It was November and they needed in a hurry. And, and uh, Jay's dad couldn't go, nor could his partner. So Jay said, I'll go. And he invited Tanya to join. They'd been going out for about five months at that point and had become fairly in inseparable. And it would be fun for them to go on a quick overnight trip to Seattle, to the big city, and um, run this errand, and then also spend the day there, do some shopping, see the sights, and, and then come back. And they did not come back. They never made it to the end of that five-hour car and ferry ride that would have taken them to, to downtown Seattle, where the furnace was awaiting them. They never made it there. They just vanished. And the thing that is um, just horrible to contemplate, and we have a similar case. Uh, I mean, there are similar cases all over the country. 
but uh, a case here in northeastern Ohio, where I'm from, Amy Mahalovic, uh, which hasn't been solved, I think, since the late 80s. And it's just you feel for the families and no closure. And the law enforcement people who are working on this for all these years, and they just keep running into dead ends. And this case was like that, wasn't it? I mean, we're talking about uh, 30 years, 30 plus years before there's any break in the case. Yes. So this mystery began in November 1987. And uh, Jay and Tanya's parents knew right away something was wrong. They just would not get in touch. Um, Particularly Tanya was well known for whenever she got somewhere safely, she'd call home and say, I'm here. Everything's good. Uh, Even when she went to Europe on uh, her first uh, trip abroad with a schoolmate's uh, uh, previous summer. Uh, she called every other day. And this is the pre-cell phone era, right? There were no right. cell phones to, to use. You right. had to find a phone. I remember. And you <laughs> always found a phone. She always would call. And so when they didn't hear from her and then, and then they didn't return the next night, they knew something was wrong. So Tanya's dad was went to the local police and said, hey, my, my daughter's missing. And they said, oh, come on, kids do this all the time. Um, she's 18 years old. She's not a kid. She's legally adult. If she wants to go off uh, with her boyfriend and not call home, that's just the way life goes. I'm, I'm certain nothing is wrong. He got this answer over and over again. He, he called the police in Washington State, where they were bound, uh, in their home in the suburb of uh, Saanich, outside of Victoria. And when he could get no interest in the police he and from the police he and uh, he talked to jay's parents and he said you know i'm going to go look for them and he and his his nephew and then later he was joined by tanya's brother they combed the olympic peninsula where they had to drive through the most wild area uh, uh, of, of the state of washington this sort of woodland where people have, have a habit of disappearing and, and uh, never being heard from again all the way traced their route to Seattle uh, and put up posters, just was tireless. Really, the Tanya's dad, oh, uh, Bill Van Kylenborg, was is sort of one of the main points of view in the early part, the 1987 part of the story when these are taking place. He was such a tragic character because he just would not give up. And his wife waited at home by the phone because, of course, you know, again, no cell phones. So she wanted to come. He said, no, you have the hard job. You have to wait in case she calls. Someone's got to be here. And she reluctantly agreed to do that, Tanya's mom, Jean. And they kept on searching. And finally, finally, he makes contact with a sympathetic detective at the Seattle Police Department who had had experience with people going missing and, and, in fact, not paying attention to parents who know something wrong. He paid attention. He said, we're going to get her into the system. We're going to find I do our best to find her and get the word out. And he called home. He went over to the ferry terminal where the Tanya would have arrived and found a payphone. And his son and his nephews are standing there around and watching. And you just look at the expression on his face because he wants to give the bit, the good news to his wife. And instead, he's told that police have called from Washington and a body has been found. They don't know who it is, but it matches Tanya's description oh, heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking what he said was the real heartbreaker he said i can't trust anybody else to do this and he went 
to go see if that was his girl waiting oh. in the funeral home at the end of a two-hour drive. Oh, it just, uh, as a parent, it's just horrible. It's just horrible to think of these things. Now, the, when we do these shows, I I want people to get the book. I want them to read the book. So, so there's a lot in the book we are not going to cover. We're not going to give away any major spoilers. Uh, but to talk about it, we've got to talk about the break. Now, DNA testing, as I understand it, they collected samples in 87. Not a lot to do with them unless there would have been a direct match in the criminal database, which there wasn't. There was no database, actually. Yes. Oh, there wasn't? Okay, okay, well then... The only thing you could do with DNA at that point, well, they weren't actually doing it at all, but the first development, sort of this first age of, of using DNA, you had to find somebody the old-fashioned way, and then you could you know, ah, either gotcha. <laughs> to sample their DNA compared to the transient, either it was bingo or you let them go. <laughs> but it was a confirmation tool, not a search tool. And, and, and the thing is, is that, I mean, no one, and you talk about the forever witness, nobody at the time could have imagined what was going to happen. And obviously, over the years, to your point, it became common to run DNA found at crime scenes against criminal databases, those kind of things. But then there comes something different, something that has to do with many millions of people just like me who saw the DNA commercials on TV and they said, boy, that looks neat. I'm going to go get my DMA, DNA done and probably agreed to terms of service saying that that's public data. And then all of a sudden you've got millions of DNA pieces of data out there. Millions of people. I think I heard over 40 million people. Yes. And that's extremely, extremely powerful. And you don't necessarily need to be one of the people submitting your DNA to be caught by it if you're a perpetrator of one of these crimes where DNA is collected, correct? Yes, and that's the real power uh, of this. So there's a distinction. Since the 1990s, the FBI and the states have built this database of DNA. It's a different kind of DNA sampling. And I won't get into the technical aspects of it, but just they're looking at a different part of the DNA molecule. And the reason why the police and, and prosecutors and the crime labs like this is because that type of DNA is unique to every individual person. It's like a fingerprint inside us all, right? That, and that's, they literally call it DNA fingerprinting. And that's what's collected in all these um, official law enforcement databases. And like a fingerprint on your fingers, it doesn't tell you anything about the person, about their inheritance or about what they look like or what their traits are. It's not that kind of DNA. It's not a coding part of the DNA. And that's why it's unique to every individual person because, you know, the coding parts we share with a lot of people because we're all related you know, at one point or another. Um, so that's the power of that kind of DNA. But if someone hasn't been arrested and put into that DNA database, they're invisible, right? So they couldn't find Tanya and Jay's killers. They couldn't find the Golden State killer. A lot of people, because they had never been caught. Now you have something entirely different. This DNA that you do from 23andMe and Ancestry, it's part of sort of our, our roots mania that, that began, you know, with the TV miniseries Roots. Alex Haley, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where did we come from? How, you know, what are our origins? Who are we related to that we don't know? Now you're sampling up 
the part of the DNA that we inherit from our parents and that makes us who we are and also allows you to trace your, your roots. It's a different part of the cell. And that one, you don't need to be in the database to be identified by the database because your relative's in there. It could be your fifth cousin. If you have one of these DNAs, it'll generate a, uh, a list of people who might be your relatives and, and that keys uh, into different records, birth and death and marriages, and you can actually piece together your entire family tree way beyond what you know just from what your parents told you. And here is the thing. I heard a statistic someone said, and I don't know if this is true. If 2% of the world's population gave their DNA samples, basically everyone could be identified because of those connections. Is that is that true? That is correct. Now, you you need to sort of have that documentary piece of it, too. It's That's why, this is what's so cool about it, because the crime labs, the, the people whose job it is, the forensic specialists, didn't come up with this new age of DNA identification. It was hobbyists, and people who were passionate about genealogy. I call them citizen scientists in, in the book, because they're just, this, this crime-busting method emanated from ordinary folks like us. So, Solving of mysteries is a little different. It's not what these companies intended. You know, you and I take the test. We already know who our parents are, probably most of us, right. and, and who our siblings are and who our immediate aunts and uncles and cousins are. That's not a mystery, but that gives you a base to build from. And then the, the DNA test, if you take it, maybe your aunt does one for you and one of your cousins, you build out their family trees into the past and you find your distant relatives, both distant in terms of barely related to you, but also distant in time back across generations. Well, think about what you have to do if you want to, and this is how it all started, if you're adopted and you want to find your birth family, you don't know who your parents are. You don't know who your siblings are. All you have is this DNA and this database of 40 million people in there. Maybe someone in there is somehow related to you. So what these citizen scientists figure out how to do is to reverse engineer a family tree. They go back in time till they find a common ancestor between someone who's in the database and the adopted person who doesn't know who they are, who, they, who their you know, birth families are. And then they build it back forward in time until they find the intersection. And voila, you've identified a person who never knew who they were. That's how this started because it finally occurred to a woman named C.C. Moore who's really been a pioneer in this this field. She's a former actress and Barbie impersonator with a passion for genealogy. She's now solved more cold cases than anyone on the planet. That's amazing. I know, right? She figured out how how to do this so well that she realized the same principle would apply to solving a crime as to finding the identity of adopted person. It works the same way. Build that family tree forward and backwards and then forwards and you can find out who that DNA sample left of the crime scene is just as easily as you could find it on a, on a person who's been adopted who doesn't know who they are. It's exactly the same um, process and that's where this breakthrough came from because unlike the criminal database which is a tool of exclusion you exclude everybody but the killer uh, this is a tool of inclusion. It finds everybody who's related to the killer and then you zero in on the person who's never had their DNA sample and find that person. And 
New York. He solved a mystery that 30 years and thousands and thousands of man hours and literally generations of detectives couldn't solve. C.C. Moore got on her laptop when she got the go-ahead to do this case and identified the killer in two hours. Right. I heard somebody say she did in two hours with cops. Not their fault, but they couldn't do it within 30 years using traditional means. I mean, it's amazing. And the thing that I love about that, in, in, in throughout history, if you look at great discoveries, many times they're found by people who are not specialized in a particular area because they don't know what they don't know. So, <laughs> you know, maybe if a criminologist, a forensic criminologist had been told this idea, they would say, well, it's impossible. But she was looking at it from a different angle, from a different point of view. And she put the pieces together. It wasn't trained out of her, so to speak. The power of being the outsider and looking at the problem in a new way is, yeah, history is replete with, with examples of us finding breakthroughs that way. Uh, and CC and others uh, who were thinking along these lines had gone to law enforcement and forensics competence and say, hey, what about this? What do you think? And, you know, their reaction was, well, that, yeah, that's great for figuring out who your great-grandma is. But, you know, we have this powerful tool that tells you exactly who did it and no one else. Why would we want to switch horses? They couldn't see the, the possibility that it could go somewhere there. Tech couldn't. Uh, and, and these citizen scientists uh, did. Now, uh, one other piece, and here's where it starts to get a little sticky, uh, because I think the average law-abiding would, citizen would say, what's the downside? I don't care if they have my DNA. I didn't do anything. I'll let them look up whoever they want, and if I've got a seventh cousin who murdered uh, somebody, throw them in jail. I think that would be a lot of people's reaction. But I think of something, for example, like the person who was the primary suspect after this match, his DNA was collected from a coffee cup. And I presume, I presume, I don't know this, you can clarify, that was without a warrant. So, it, like most things that are good, there's also a thornier side. Talk to us about that. Yeah, you know, so, well, yeah, think about it from this point of view. You have taking an ancestry test to find your roots, uh, to learn about relatives or whether you're, you know, the, the family legends about having Native American roots or being from Italy or whatever are true or not. So this is a, this is a tool for doing that. That's why you're doing it. Uh, and then you find out that unbeknownst to you, the police have been uh, using it to find someone you're related to, to charge with a crime. Well, you know, many people actually do have the reaction. You did well. I don't even know I had that relative. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna be upset that they're if they did something wrong. I, I'm like anyone else. I want them caught. But not everybody has that reaction. And others say, well, if you asked me, I'd probably say okay. But you did this without asking me, and and I don't like that. So there really was some controversy over over this that initially put some limits on. Uh, it closed off some of the databases that the police were looking at that were, and I should say that weren't private, that were public, but just not public for the purpose that they were being put used to. Um, so 
So yeah, that was one thorny kind of ethical issue that's still being navigated, frankly. The coffee cup is a little different, actually. Um, the coffee cup was used to confirm the genetic genealogy work, right? So they, what they had was DNA left behind on the, at the crime scenes on the, when the body and or other articles found after Jade were murdered and they had deserved all these years, but they had nothing to compare. I mean, they did put it in the, in the FBI database, which is called CODIS, but it would never got any hits, even though a, a half a million cases have been solved with that database over the years. The, as, as we talking about, you can't identify someone who's not in that database. So this was a way get to get around that limitation. Uh, and the coffee cup was, they followed their suspect around truck driver in Seattle who had never been arrested for anything, which is why he wasn't in the law enforcement database. And they waited for him to leave something behind with his DNA on it. And, um, he dropped the coffee cup on the, to the street out of his truck and drove away. Well, that's abandoned now. You don't need a search warrant for it. And they got that and they did the DNA fingerprinting coffee cup and that confirmed that what the genealogist cc moore had said was correct that he was the killer at least he his dna was at the crime scene and tried convicted to call him the killer now as i understand it and we won't get into it there's still been some more controversy around that particular person and uh, what has happened subsequently but we will leave that to the book to answer those questions there's <laughs> a lot more that's happened for sure. There's a lot more. There's a lot more. Now, you know, I grew up watching Columbo, you know, and you, <laughs> or, or reading Agatha Christie or whatever it might be. And I always try to keep in mind, again, real people, real heartache, real deaths. But when you read those tropes in, in those books and TV shows and movies, they always talked about the perfect crime, the perfect crime. But at this point... With the technological advances out there, video monitoring everywhere, computer databases linked across states, cities, countries, DNA testing, this new um, genealogy, genetic genealogy that's being done with DNA is, you know, if you're, you're a criminal out there and you're shooting for the perfect crime, I think your odds just went way, way down that that's even achievable. Yes, the well, and that's due in part to this uh, this advent of genetic genealogy because no matter how careful you are, somewhere um, someone related to you has your, your their DNA is in one of these databases, and it's just a matter of making that link. Um, add to that the fact that they are uh, crime labs now and uh, are able to get more and more information out of ever smaller samples of DNA. When they first started it in the 1980s and 90s, you needed a, a blood stain the size of a quarter. Um, now they only need microscopic amount of trace DNA to get all the same level of information. Uh, and that's, we literally shed DNA all the time. So then it raises the question, well, what the police are doing is very focused and they're not digging into people in genetics uh, they're just trying to identify people that's one thing but you know what happens if the the, the end run of dna comes along and, and, and hacks one of these databases you know how valuable all this genetic information restoring would be to to insurers or to 
potential adversaries in the national security realm, the ability to blackmail people because that DNA shows they have a family that is secret or that they have a predilection for disease or for mental illness or political enemies. Yeah. It's amazing. Exactly. It's this, the potential is a little scary. Not to try to be an alarmist, but when you're putting, you know, it's one thing to have your identity hacked or your credit cards hacked. Once your DNA is hacked, you can't, you know, nobody can reissue the card right, for that. Right. Uh, and so people who are sort of willy nilly spitting in these tubes and sending them off to be put into databases need to be assured that their secrets are safe and that no one can access their genetic information. Um, without their permission. And, you know, some of these, these databases have already been hacked. So it, it is both progress that brings us miraculous possibilities, but it also raises some other uh, possibilities that aren't so savory and that, uh, you know, we need to be sure we're protecting ourselves from. There's an interesting parallel here, I think. Um, I think about the proliferation of true crime podcasts. And I don't think they're all bad. I mean, I'm doing one right now. <laughs> yes. But I but I, I try to do it a little bit different way, and that's probably why it's not at the top of the charts. But I try to do it in a thoughtful way and not saying, well, let's speculate in a real-life case who did something with no evidence. Um, but I think those kind of things happen. So I think that a microphone in somebody's hand who isn't either A, qualified, or B, doesn't really think about the implications of what they're doing can be very dangerous. This can be very dangerous. So in terms of these citizen detectives, again, God bless them. This is great. You talk about CC Moore. That is awesome that she's been able to figure this out and, and bring people to justice. I think that's fantastic. But do we have a danger of citizen detectives going off half-cocked, being online, leveling accusations, those kind of things. That's a concern as well, isn't it? Yes. I mean, any technology that brings benefits can also be abused. And, and we've seen that through, throughout history. Sometimes there's unintended consequences. You know, oh, replacing horse and buggies with cars. What a wonderful progress. Oh, we didn't really understand what, what the consequences of those emissions might be, though. And, and so every advance also is a give and take. And you have to weigh the benefits. So far, the benefits of this new use of DNA have been great. And the harm, there's no documented case yet of genetic genealogy being used in a harmful way or to, uh, you know, to blackmail somebody or to, to do, but, but there's always a but. The best way to make sure that doesn't happen is to build in sufficient safeguards, both in how the police use this material and how the public can access it. And how individuals can protect themselves from, from invasions of the privacy. You know, privacy is a precious commodity that has been chipped away at for many years as we've embraced technological advances. Think of the ways that it was impossible to track what happened to Jay and Tony. There was no cell phone towers to piece together their movements. There was no pervasive video surveillance and cams and stores and stuff where they may have stopped and where you might see someone in the background following them. None of that kind of evidence exists and the police would have loved to have had it. But think about the everyday citizens uh, are also sort of being captured by these 
this technology that we never had before and the impact that it has on privacy as well as being a boon to, to law enforcement. This is a, another brick in that wall of privacy busting technologies that has done fabulous goods in terms of catching killers, but there's also a potential risk that I don't think we yet fully understand. And I think an appropriate way to close out, and then we'll talk about where everybody can find the book, which is basically everywhere, but with real people, the family of Tanya and Jay, their surviving family members, I can only imagine, but what was their reaction to the huge break in the case? Mixed, as you might imagine. Um, on the one hand, they've been waiting for this for over 30 years. There have been other breakthroughs before, and their hopes had, uh, had, had risen only for it to be shattered. There was many twists and turns in, in this case that we, we won't go into here, but they've been disappointed so many times. And they were cautious. They were, you know, the, the detective who's been working on this case for the last 15 years has, you know, was very careful in terms of both keeping them informed and also protective of them. He's really an amazing character in the book. But when it became clear that they had a real suspect and there was going to be an arrest of families, Jay's and Tanya's, um, close friends and some of their relatives, not all of them are still living, but those that were came to the, to the announcement of the arrest, came to the trial as hard as it was for them to, to hear this. And then they testified at the sentencing afterwards. And now they're standing by to see what's going on next because the story isn't over yet. Uh, it's been really hard for them. I don't think about this in terms of closure. I mean, they think about, you know, Jay and Tanya would be in their fifties now and have kids of their own and that would have lived full lives. That's what they think about when they, when these memories are rekindled by a development case like this. And it's really hard for them. And they're a wonderful group of people kind enough to share their stories as I, as I worked on this. Um, that gave a dimension to the, to the narrative I, I couldn't possibly have without that. Very grateful for that. And I'm a little protective of them because when you write about people and, and have, you have to have empathy for them and, and that's the way this kind of a writing works. And um, it was a privilege to, to, for them to share their stories. Well, likewise, it has been a privilege for us to talk about uh, this new book. Where can people find, I assume everywhere fine books are sold, can find the book? Absolutely, on, and in many formats. Uh, as On November 29th is the official release date, and um, in print, uh, in e-formats. Um, and for the first time, I actually narrated the audio book myself. I've never done that for one of my books, but uh, my publisher... Uh, asked me to give it a shot, and that was a new experience. I was in a <laughs> studio just like you are now, and, and um, I'll be very eager to see if uh, it, um, uh, any readers slash listeners uh, think it was a good idea or not, because that'll determine whether I do it again. But it was fun to, to give it a shot. I haven't gotten to hear it, but I'm sure that it's great. And it's been great talking with Edward Humes about his latest book, the Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. Edward, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Jim. Thank you. 
And again, we thank Edward for joining us on our maiden voyage of the relaunch of Crime Scene. He mentioned November 29th. Of course, that was November 29th that has passed. Uh, actually, this was supposed to originally air in November. But frankly, uh, we, we started to think about it and thought, geez, you know, with the holidays coming up and everything, it's going to get totally lost. And I feel very strongly about this show and certainly our interview with Edward. And I thought, you know, let's let's hold off. Let's hold off to the new year and relaunch this right when uh, folks are kind of back in the swing of things. So that's what we decided to do. So that book is out now and you should check out Edward's book, this one and all of his books. He's such a great writer. So, so smart and so engaging. And we have many guests lined up already for this uh, show and uh, interviews already recorded with some great people. I can't wait until you can hear them. So please make sure that you follow, like, wherever you get your podcast, because it's so important. Please tell your friends who love true crime that there is a new, quote, new show on the horizon, Jim Harold's crime scene, that they can enjoy if they are into the topic of true crime. We do a little bit differently here. We try to take a little more thoughtful approach of it. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. And as I always said when we did this previously, be careful out there. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.